This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast whose dark passenger is wisdom, demanding that we regularly interrogate the thing we're watching or playing or whatever. Today's thing for interrogation is the Showtime TV show Dexter about a vigilante serial killer. The show ran from 2006 to 2013. It was originally based on novels by Jeff Lindsay. We're covering it now due to its revival in the show Dexter New Blood. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, and I do not like blood on my eggs for breakfast because I think eggs are yucky. Sarah Lynn. My name is Sarah Lynn Brooke, and I live by the code, the code of eating the last cookie and never getting caught. Lawrence. My name is Lawrence Ware, coming at you from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I don't kill people. Hello, uh, my name is Michael. I'm a psychology student and a master's philosophy candidate. And he doesn't kill his people either. No. Do you like eggs? To be honest, the most shocking thing I've heard today is that Mark doesn't like eggs. Who doesn't like eggs? What is up with that, Mark? It's a leftover thing from when I was very young. I have not, I have not matured enough to get over it. It's funny because Dexter likes eggs. Like he would eat it in breakfast and even the, the show, the beginning starts with him making eggs for breakfast. And this also inspired me since we often cover more than one thing to watch the first two episodes of Hannibal in which I guess in every scene, Hannibal is going to serve somebody else his disgusting people meat and make them eat it in front of him. And they don't know. They think it's just regular sausage. So by comparison, this whole Dexter opening scene is very wholesome. But that Hannibal show was absolutely beautiful. Like the visuals were amazing, Mm -hmm. the Hannibal show. I missed those opening credits from this last season of Dexter. I, I didn't realize how much I really enjoyed those opening credits. Like I never skipped over those opening credits when I watched Dexter the first time around. I guess you can see if you're going to enjoy the show just by that, that if I played that for my wife and she saw that orange and those textures, like, no, she'd be out just, just right in the first minute without showing any actual <laughs> blood. So this is one of those kind of I need an episode topic. What am I already watching? But even at the time, this was somewhat of a guilty pleasure. I don't know. I didn't consider this a amazing show, but I was into it enough that I read some of the novels or rather did audiobooks. But like I got through three or four of them. Only the first season really has anything to do with with this. So there was something that captured my imagination about this. And, you know, we had Showtime anyway from watching that Cosby documentary for the last episode. (laughs) Then I quickly uh, jumped on this. What are your various backgrounds with this? Let's start with you, Michael. You, I just put on Facebook, who's watched Dexter, and you chimed in. So tell us who you are and what your relationship to this property is. Yeah, so I remember watching it. A lot of my friends back in high school were obsessed with it. And then I remember like I, it was more of like a binge kind of thing. It was never just like having to tune in every week. It was just more like waiting for the whole season, coming in, watching it. Pretty binge pretty addictive. Definitely fills in like a little piece of us that we need to, like, especially during high school years. And then we really needed that piece of like some sort of medium to transfer all our, let's say, the kind of like dark passengers, which weren't dark passengers as much as they were like puberty. But it was fun. Definitely enjoyed it. The, The New Blood series was a good touch. I find it kind of courageous for the creators to come together and say, like, hey, like, we left this off really badly. Now we need to pick it back up again. Let's see what we can do. And I guess we all know how that turned out. But Which we're not going to spoil for at least 30 minutes, let's say. Yes. <laughs> wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. How the hell are we going to talk about this show and not spoil it for 30 minutes? I think, I'm, I'm just saying how the last episode of the new series ends. I think we could hold off 
at least 15 minutes from spoiling that. But I think everybody knows from the press how the original series ended in an unsatisfying way, right? He did not die. That was something that people objected to. And so there was room to pick it up later and actually having enough time pass so his son could grow up and be part of the show and be central to the show. Like that was actually pretty damn cool. I would not have necessarily wanted to sit through 10 seasons in the interim to get this character to this point. Lawrence, what is your, I know you're sort of a horror aficionado, but I was still kind of surprised as a clergyman that this thing had asked you to emulate someone who's murdering people that you would be into this. What is your history with this show? I've been down with the show since 2006. I believe it came out in the fall, probably October. Yep, you're exactly right. I watched it weekly, never did a binge. I never re- went back and rewatched the show. There were, to be sure, ups and downs on the season. Like There are some seasons that are complete trash, and there are other seasons that are really, really good. And the way that the first iteration of the show went, I was very, very disappointed because I think that it kind of cheapened what the show was kind of building to, like what the climax was supposed to do. Now, beyond that, there was also a thing called Dexter Early Cuts. Was that an internet-only thing or something? I actually didn't. I think so. I think so. It was like Early Cuts, and then it was like All in the Family or something like that. But it was like in the 2010s, 2012s. I didn't watch that as closely, but I did kind of jump in on that. And then when this final season was announced, I was very excited about it. At that point, I had been writing as a um, kind of entertainment dude for a while, and I thought about covering it, but I saw some early screeners of the early of the show, and I, I didn't think it was anything worth to write about. It was fun to watch, but it wasn't anything kind of deep and philosophical for me. It was just like this dude struggling with the same thing he's been struggling with for the past like 10 years. But I think that the way that the show ended was really interesting. I mean, and you're coming at me with this clergyman and godly <laughs> stuff. But yo, man, I mean, a guy who likes killing, but who doesn't like killing, I'm all in. Let's go. Let's watch the main struggle. Sarah Lynn, what's your background with this? I was a huge Michael C. Hall fan from Six Feet Under. I mean, I was obsessed with that show. I loved it. I loved that character. And I thought he was such a great actor. And when he signed to do Dexter, I was already just kind of in. It's like, you know, how you have authors who are like automatic buys. I was an automatic for Dexter. I was going to, I, I'm not a particular horror fan. I'm not um, particularly obsessed with serial killers, but (laughs) I thought that the premise was pretty interesting. And, you know, you're right, Lawrence, that first season just sucked me in. I was hooked. The first four seasons I thought were pretty good, that fourth season especially. And then after that, yeah, it was just a, was a decline. So it was, yeah, Clyde Phillips, the showrunner, leaving. That is sort of the conventional wisdom is like, and he's back in for the new thing. So he could fix the mistake. Absolutely. And I even stuck with it for a little while after season four. But at the end of season six, when Deb said that she was in love with her brother, I was out. I was like, I, I don't think I can, yeah, I can take this anymore. And I came back and I watched the end of, of season eight. And of course that was a dumpster fire too, but it was just one of those shows that I both loved and hated. I just, I was never in the middle with this one. And I feel bad because I feel like, I don't know that Michael C. Hall's career has gone to where I think he should have. <laughs> I feel like he should be working a lot more or working in, in bigger projects 
because I think he's so talented. He's so talented. But man, oh man, the last few seasons of the show did not do any favors. It did add more of a soap opera element. Sarah Lynn was on first for our soap operas episode, and she has written a novel that involves soap opera. And that's at least one of the things that, to try to keep it interesting, is who's dating who. So, Michael, that that was interesting, your insight about the psychology from the viewer perspective. And I hadn't really thought about younger people watching this and using it like their sort of teenage Nietzsche infatuation of having this uber mentality of the the kind of thing that would be very much less of a guilty pleasure or much less of a what exactly am I watching and why am I watching it than it was for me as an adult seeing this. Uh, But I know as a you're a psych student, you're a grad student. Is that right? Yeah. So when I first started even watching Dexter, didn't even think about psychology. I was in grade nine, so around 14. It feels like, and a buddy of mine, he was also super into it, but it feels as though what really drew us in was just that not only it was entertaining, but it was kind of that feeling as if justice is being served, which was just kind of like picks up to that whole idea of, hey, like maybe kids who are in high school who are just in this monotonous kind of routine they're able to just go into the world of Dexter and not necessarily to associate it. Like I was talking with my mom earlier and I was telling her about this whole podcast and she's like, Hey, like you should bring up that people who watch it will be triggered. And they'll think that, Oh, like especially kids who aren't formed or developed that they'll watch it and that it will be some sort of trigger. But it wasn't like that for me. And for the people I know, it it kind of gave it that sense of like people are getting what they deserve kind of thing. And then maybe the justice aspect of Dexter got repetitive. And that's maybe why people found it boring as it kept going, because there's only so much bad things people could do, right? That would justify Dexter's rationale, Harry's code. I'm trying to remember, there's some other sci-fi property, it's not coming to mind, where it's sort of escalated of like, it started out that I'm only punishing the worst murders, then it moves to like, tax fraud and then it's like just whoever annoys me oh it's a it's a manga death note death note there you go Mm. Uh, where a guy has a similar power and just over time the standards change that it's surprising you know i guess since he had this firm code in here he wasn't relying on sort of his judgment of right and wrong at the time it was like i have no innate moral code so i have to use this external thing and therefore maybe that's the thing with the new season is that He's sort of out of practice with that and maybe has developed more of a a real moral code for everyday living, has become more of a person as having like what appears to be a normal relationship and not just like this faking it that it was in the first season so that it becomes less natural. But is this like a superhero property? Is that that what's appealing here? Probably, right? It's kind of like we can throw around those words like vigilante or, or hero, right? But the thing about Dexter, he never kind of crosses that line. Like in that one movie, God Bless America, when the people are like talking loud in the movie theater and the guy shoots them up, you know, God bless America. And then that that kind of is like crossing the line, right? That's kind of thinking of, well, you know, these people, sure, they're annoying. Sure, they're taking up two parking spaces, but do they deserve to die? No. And if we ask it from a moral philosophical level, there's quite a bit, right? Like we won't necessarily like Dexter, we're in his head. We're seeing this through his perspective. And so we're forced to not just see him as a human being, but also evolve with him, right? So from the beginning, he was sort of faking being a person. He was faking this relationship with Rita so that he could seem to the outside world like a normal person. 
And eventually by the end, I mean, you could say by the end of season eight, he was a fully formed, developed person who felt joy, who felt great loss, right? And he still, for the most part, kept to the code, but sometimes he veered from the code. You know, I don't think Dokes deserved to die. Wasn't that technically the woman that killed him? Anyway, I don't totally remember season two that well, but I think that was... But he become more and more of someone that he wanted to be from the beginning that he didn't think that he was. And so when we enter into this last season, New Blood, he is feeling joy. He is establishing relationships that have meaning for him and that have meaning for other people. And he's part of a community. And so by the end of and we're not and, and we're not doing spoilers just yet. Sorry. You're right. This is really hard, Lawrence. All right, we're now at least 15 minutes in. Go ahead and spoil it if you want. You can stop listening if you really care. If you guys are listening to this and you guys have not seen the last season, what the hell are you doing with your life? Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? Maybe some listeners are Lawrence Ware completists and they have to listen to everything you're on, whether they've they seen might the show be, or not. They may be, they may be. I feel sorry for them. Go ahead, Sarah Lynn, spoil it. Yeah, so if you haven't seen the ending, maybe just take a little pause and go see the series. Okay, so spoiler alert! <laughs> So by the end, he is not the hero. He is not the hero at all. So we discover he is not just an anti-hero. He needs to go. And so that's why I think at the end, it was a satisfying ending, finally, because he got the ending that I think most of us think that he probably doesn't. No, Sarah, you're being kind. (laughs) I'm pulling the gloves off, Dan. All right, listen. At the end of season eight, I was pissed off because he should have been dead then. There was no reason to let him live at the end of that season. The only reason you would do it was because you thought maybe you could bring it back or something like that. But at that time, there was no promise that you would bring it back. So I was very upset. Everybody was very upset who was passionate about this show. If you watched this show at that time, you were upset. You were like, F these people. To hell with them. Because you thought the dude should have died at that point. So for them to bring it back, I was like, if he don't die at the end of New Blood, I'm completely done with Showtime. I'm done with Michael C. Hall as a person. I'm done with everything. I'm, I'm tired of it because he needs to die. Dude is not a good guy. From the very beginning, he hasn't been a good guy. He's been kind of meddling, kind of flirting with being a good guy. But we see that he's not a good guy. And so, you're right. We discovered that he is not the good guy, although I was never under any illusion that he was a good guy. I thought it was a little bit of a twist that who killed him killed him. I don't know if we want to spoil that. That was satisfying. That made sense. But it does leave the door open to explore what happens with his son, because I think that's where the show could go in the next season. They chose to, to go there. But that character needed to be he, he was well past his expiration point. He needed to die. Following Michael's citation of a relatively obscure 2011 film by Bob Goldthwaite, God Bless America, I'm going to cite the 2012 film Maniac starring Elijah Wood which uh, Sarah Lynn, you were saying, oh, we get to see through the eyes of a serial killer. That film Maniac was literally through the eyes of a serial killer, that the entire thing was shot in first person. What year was that? 2012. It was a callback to Peeping Tom, which is a 1960, 1950s movie or something like that. And it's very disturbing. But yeah, you see it through the eyes of that serial killer. It was really interesting. This is 06 when it came out. This is the first time for me that I had jumped into that character's shoes, which I thought that was really clever. And I'm a writer and I'm a reader and I'm also a writing teacher. And so I 
advocate reading because it gives us empathy, right? We want to experience what other people who are different from us experience. We always think of that as a good thing, right? And now the argument is, is it a good thing that we're jumping into the shoes of people that we would consider evil or bad or destructive? I'm going to answer yes to that, but let's put it on pause because that inter- opens up a whole entire question about really the kind of arc of television post The Sopranos, I think. Because so much has changed post Sopranos. We'll get that in a second, but I got a question for you, Mark. And you said you read the books. Were the books as good as the show? Because I imagine that the books go deeper into his psychology and give you more insight into how he is as a person. They don't go deeper. And so it's pretty disappointing that they're very light. An easy, fluffy read, just fun. One of them was called Dexter's Delicious. Where it lost me, and I think this is the third or book or something like this, but I don't think I got beyond book three. Maybe I started book four. I forget exactly where I was in it, but I definitely got past at least two. And that the second one, I think, had something to do with devil worshipers and the occult or something. Like, it kind of went a different direction than the TV show. But then, so Cody and Aster, his stepkids... They had an abusive father and they begin to show their own signs that they're going to be, have these urges too. And he has to then be their mentor. And that kind of lost me because psychologically I thought, okay, I can buy from his situation that this would have happened. But having two of them that merely because they're, you know, it just wasn't a comparable situation at all. It's not like his dad murdered people in front of them. He was just a bastard and beat them and was sort of your more garden variety type of asshole as opposed to this exceptional circumstance. So I really enjoyed that there was something like that in the the reboot show and the revival show and that it turned out the way it did. And they didn't say, oh, he's just, his son is just like him and he can lead him through this. That that was actually the big revelation is that his son, while he did have violent tendencies and things, they came from a much more ordinary source and he ultimately could not get on board with this project. And if they had actually launched into, we're going to have father-son serial killer season two, come on, (laughs) I wouldn't have bought that. So, you know, I feel like there is some justice done to the gravity of things in a way that there wasn't in the books. I mean, maybe the books ended fabulously. I, I didn't follow up the whole journey. Well, don't you think because of that, the son doesn't have that dark passenger in the way that his father does, that there can't be another season after this. Like, I don't know what they could do after this season with that character, because... I think they could probably finagle something. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't make sense, really, uh, to do it, but they might figure out something. But you're right. I do want to say something about Jennifer Carpenter in a minute. But I imagine that if they wanted to go somewhere, they would go somewhere with that son. That's where they would logically go. I just don't know how they would develop the story. But I think that Jennifer Carpenter, she plays Deborah Morgan in the original series, and she's the dark passenger in this one. And I thought she was great. And one of the things that was, hasn't really been spoken on, like her and Michael C. Hall were like married, I think, during the making of Dexter. And I think they broke up in 2011. The show went on. So I always thought that was an interesting dynamic, their relationship and their interplay knowing that backstory. That's all I thought was interesting. But I thought that she was wonderful in this new season. I think she's fantastic. I would watch her in anything, too. And she was not the dark passenger. She was like his guardian angel or his superego, something like that. No, she was, she was supposed to be like kind of a dark passenger. But the dark kind of. passenger is specifically is the, the id. The thing that makes him kill. Which is why his, I know. he sometimes was picturing his brother 
being his guardian angel, you know, being his guiding voice instead of his stepfather. Anyway, I thought that was a nice twist. But Harry was, yeah, she took the place of Harry. Yes, because right, right. the actor died. I'm sure they would have kept him on. Oh, did he die? Yes. I didn't know that. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. You can't have a ghost age, too, though. That, that's another, like, you'd have to de-age him. Anyway, so Michael, I'm pull out your psychology chops here. We've got the evolution of this Dexter character over time, the thing with his son, and now the thing with his sister, including the incestuous stuff. Do you want to speak to any of that? The huge thing is that similarity that he has with Harrison, how they were both born, and then when they were young, born in blood, huge factor. Psychologically, right, like the DSM-5, like if Dexter was to walk in, into like a therapist's office and sit down and just assuming the therapist doesn't have this like rule that they have to call 911 when someone's at risk, right, if it was like a confidential therapist and Dexter walked in and the therapist had the DSM-5, they would definitely classify him as having some sort of disorder or some sort of psychopathy or, or trauma, something that induced him to act a certain way. But it doesn't really get anyone as far, like psychologically, right? That isn't to talk smack about the whole DSM-5 therapy idea, but I didn't necessarily remember character development from him personally. If it wasn't for Rita, if it wasn't for Harrison, he wouldn't have necessarily gotten better as a person. Perhaps it's the one show, I think, that the main character, Dexter, that he, he doesn't necessarily, like he develops what we define socially as development, right? Like he, he has a job, he has a wife, but those factors are all external. Now we can argue that internally, there are some sort of developmental factors like following Harry's code better, but it gets repetitive and throughout the seasons. And that's probably why Sarah and Lawrence mentioned this whole idea of it got boring over, over the seasons, but that character arc was definitely missing. And I got to say, like, I also find it funny how we were talking about how we're not going to spoil the final episode of New Blood of the last season. And we, we still are kind of in that territory. We still didn't necessarily spoil it. Like we have said that like, yes, Dexter has, has died, but we haven't really gone into the details about what happened, which, which I think is good. And we can, we can definitely we can come back to that also. But one critical point that I really want to say is this, is that my favorite episode, hands down, out of all of Dexter was from the New Blood season, but it was specifically that episode with Harrison where he got absolutely just plumbered. Like he took so many, this this compilation of drugs and alcohol. I remember watching that and there's something strangely terrifying and satisfying about that. Kind of comparing it to, there's a Netflix show called Deadly Class. I highly recommend it. Also follows that idea of like a, troubled person through youth, right? Like psychology definitely tells us that anything that happens in childhood will very much likely stay and, and have consequences as, as you grow older. But the similarity that I found with that one episode, I believe it was episode three or four and deadly class was just that idea of what the drugs really tell us about the person kind of like no filter. The look in Harrison's eyes was just this, demonic it was it was straight up something that really since i saw it sure i felt this kind of feeling of compassion knowing harrison's whole backstory his childhood how he went out of his way to even search for his father initially gets rejected at the beginning then slowly forms a relationship not to mention there was this odd vibe in the very first or maybe the second episode when they first meet 
Let's stop for a second and talk about our sponsor, which is Upstart. I would like you to right now partially examine your life, specifically the role that Hydra's credit card debt plays into it. If you are free of the scourge, bully for you. If it is something that is following you around with no particular end in sight, well, Upstart is here to help with that. Upstart has helped over 1.8 million customers on their path to financial freedom. How do they do this? Well, they'll offer you a personal loan that can help you pay down this high interest debt. Or maybe you've got an investment you want to make, a personal expense. Upstart makes this very simple. It's all online. It has simple and easy to understand payment terms. It'll be a fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. And in minutes, you can check your rate for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. Now, maybe your credit score is bad. Rather than looking at just your credit score, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check this without impacting your credit score. You can receive funds even as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So don't wait. Check your rate today at upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty to check your rate today. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. I read an article today about watching Dexter as a parable about addiction, which is interesting Uh, that you brought hmm. up the drug thing Hmm. because we're watching what Dexter's addiction does to all of the people around him who care for him, right? And then the new season is about relapse because he spent the last 10 years not feeding his addiction, right? And then when his son overdoses, he gets a very close view on how that behavior affects those who, because he does love his son. He desperately loves his son and he's so worried about him. But he's such a narcissist, he doesn't make that connection, you know, that, oh, maybe I'm doing the same thing to the people who care about me that my son just did to me. Just to add to that, that whole idea of addiction, psychologically, we tend to assign addiction into this category of bad, into this category of harmful. And that's true, right? Like a lot of the times when we see people that are addicted to something, right? Like even since the Greeks, right, it was that virtue of temperance. But addiction, it's painted in our society as, as terrible, as something bad, and that's fair. Philosophically, however, we can say that, oh, like, what if Dexter's addiction wasn't fueled towards the bad, right? He didn't maliciously torture even the worst of criminals. He always had that same routine of just taping them up, showing them their victims, and stabbing a knife through their heart. Painful, sure. Merciful, maybe sometimes. Maybe his addiction was philosophically drawn towards not the bad, but to the good, to that sense towards justice. Addiction to justice. That's a good name for a show. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first. I want want everybody who's listening who can't hear know that I'm shaking my head (laughs) about cheesy that was. Addiction to justice. Get out of here, I like the idea that this is a show about addiction, but shows about addiction and movies about addiction are so depressing. But this could explain why there's no progression in this character because he's just an addict and he's always going to be an addict. And it's just, it's so frustrating to deal with an addict. But because they actually have it be a parable or, you know, a metaphor for something that's worse, like nobody's actually, the viewers are hopefully 
not in danger of, of becoming vigilante murderers. So you could talk about something that's that over the top and you could do it in a funny way. And you could have the, you know, that opening credits with the, it's, oh, it's a little sly. It's a little spooky. It's all, you know, and have that fun with it. And yet it's actually a show about this big bummer topic that really opened the door for me, that thought. It's kind of like, why are people so fond of cop shows? Like like SWAT, for instance. Like I, I loved SWAT and anything kind of cop related. It's, it's because it's kind of this feeling of justice and Dexter kind of takes a one step forward. Like we go from people getting arrested, action, gun scenes, to careful, meticulous, rule-based planning to execute something. That heightened experience, I think that you're talking about, Mark, right? It's that, mm-hmm. because you're right, I think stories, I agree with you, I think stories about addiction can be really depressing, a big downer, to use a bad pun. But I think it's, <laughs> it's you know, to use, you know, something that fortunately the vast, vast majority of us can't relate to, we're not serial killers, and we're not addicted to killing other people, but it's so heightened that it does make it, you know, in a way that's funny sometimes or it's so over the top. It's a great way to kind of explore that topic. Notice how also one crucial psychological piece of why people portray Dexter as kind of more heroic, more vigilante style, probably because serial killers, the cliche idea, but I think it really rings true, is that they have a tendency from the beginning, whether it's trauma-induced or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. But take, for instance, the documentary, uh, I'm not sure if I can swear, but it's like Don't F with Cats. That documentary kind of shows, and it's, it's based on a true story. And it's very disturbing, actually. It's, yeah, it's, it's very, very disturbing. Far more disturbing than Dexter. Yes, but even the quote-unquote protagonist of, of that documentary, who is a real-life serial killer, had these tendencies and not sure if we see this also with Ted Bundy and all those folks, but they have a tendency from childhood to kill animals and just be malicious towards, I'm not too sure about the characteristics specifically, but Dexter had none of that. Like we never saw him be violent towards animals and sure, granted, we only got a few flashbacks of his childhood. Yeah, I think there was a fl- some flashback about him having murdered animals like they didn't show him doing yeah. it but like this is why his, his his stepfather detected that he was this you know oh yeah that makes sense then violent tendencies like i don't remember all the details of the flashbacks like i don't think that for instance he just killed a random girl and then his dad discovered and covered it up and said no you have to be like it was something that it was stopped before it got to that didn't he dig up the dead dog or something in the yard is there a flashback that shows him killing an animal did Deb find something? I'm trying to... I did rewatch the first episode and a half, but like I was not going to sit through a substantial <laughs> portion of this to, you know... Not all eight. I mean, I remember the arcs. I remember the... Especially not the last four seasons. Don't sit through the five through eight. Don't do that shit to yourself. See, I got to say, my standards were so low for this show. It's just like, oh, this is fun that I did not notice like a substantial... And I thought, in fact, the thing with his sister getting incestuous because they're not technically related that that was actually kind of a an interesting thing to explore it's just i don't of course you did mark because you're twisted like that i can't believe you're sitting here trying to explain to me how in the world you didn't see incest (laughs) as weird what's wrong with you of course it's weird but it's weird in the character of the rest of the show that he's a messed up character and i guess i wasn't 
this is my maybe my criticism and what I was looking for Michael for affirmation from as a psych person that I don't feel like, you know, they make gestures like, yes, they're aware that serial killers show themselves by killing animals first and things like that. But I think they should have had like a mental health consultant on hand to really talk about this stuff and say like, well, what would the character do next? And I would be extremely surprised if that happened at any point. I think this was just Clyde Phillips or his writers, you know, intuitions about how it might work and what would be most interesting or titillating to the audience without really exploring deeply this, what would be a pretty interesting thing. Like in what's the, uh, not Criminal Minds, but Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Oh, Mindhunter is amazing. And I'm so sad that they're not going to do any more seasons because Mindhunter was wonderful. But I would be surprised if they didn't have some kind of mental health consultant for the final season, like so for the new blood season. Like I'm almost certain they had to have somebody that they're talking to about that. But the previous seasons, man, it was it was the Wild Wild West in 2006, and they definitely didn't have one there. But now we're somewhere it's more conscious of that kind of stuff. They probably have one now. We've got Killing Eve now. We've got Mindhunter. You, The Fall. Do you remember The Fall? Oh, Jamie Dornan. Jamie Dornan was in The Fall, right? Yes. So, and Jillian Anderson. Jillian Anderson. Jillian Anderson was amazing on that show. Oh my God. She was so good in that. Unbelievable. She was a superhero, I felt like, in that one. But with these new iterations, these new imaginings of serial killers, I was sort of wondering, oh, with Dexter coming back after all this time, one, did it seem like sort of a dated idea because it's coming back from such a long time ago and what was really new and fresh back then feels possibly stale and old now? And then two, did we really need it? Did we need that closure? Okay, I'm going to jump on this one. I'll answer the second one first and then circle back to the first one. The second answer is yes, we need it. Because if you were a fan of the show and you saw how the show ended, you were upset and you were probably sitting around throwing your hands into walls upset for every year up until they released this particular season when he finally died because they completely botched the end of the show. They did. They absolutely botched the end of the show. And so since they botched the end of the show, they had to come back and give us something. Now, to be honest, all the extra story, I kind of didn't need it. But I needed him to die. Like I needed him to die. I needed him to come to terms with who he was, and I needed someone to kill him. Now, circling back to your first question, here's the thing, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it, and probably once I figure it out, I might include it in the book that I'm writing. But there is something going on in, the, in American culture where we are obsessed with antiheroes right now. Like there's something going on. For a long time we have been. But it hit mainstream, I want to say around The Sopranos. Like, that's kind of where it feels like it hit mainstream around the time of The Sopranos. But since then, it's just been a string of antiheroes. Even Don Draper was antihero in many kind of ways. Breaking Bad. Yeah, Breaking uh, Bad. Of Walter White. Walter White was an antihero in many ways. Because this is one of the original kind of antihero shows. There's certainly space in the culture for it. And it was definitely worth having this show kind of come back. And it's certainly, it's, I, Needed is a hard, needed, no, wanted, yes. Because this is kind of the original anti-hero, the original guy who's like both a good guy and a bad guy trying to figure out where his place is. So, yes, I think so. But I'm still trying to figure out what is our cultural obsession with anti-heroes and why does it have so much cachet in the way that it does right now? I just, I I don't know what it is. I don't know why, but 
part of me feels two things. Um, and just to respond to Sarah Lynn's question, it's, and, and to really build up on what Lawrence mentioned as well, I feel like I kind of want to play devil's advocate. And while I do strongly believe that the ending was bad, maybe we can also approach her from that position of there will never be a satisfaction. There will never be an end. I'm sure that's a stretch. I'm sure there are other like factors that the writers had to deal with. And another thing is this whole idea of anti-hero is kind of like wet water. Like It's like, what is the clarification? Because then if we get into hero versus anti-hero, then it's just back to moral philosophy. Then it's just back to what do we mean by good? What do we mean by bad? What are the characteristics that make someone a hero versus an anti-hero? Right? And then throwing those labels around. And I do see that we as people, we do have that surge or we do have this tendency to feel a sense of compassion for those that are acting outside of the norm, like whether we're seeing Dexter who takes that norm in his world to a different level compared to Joe Goldberg from from you, right? A lot of these anti-heroes are kind of fueled by their backstory, which is just always coming back to childhood, always coming back to what Dexter faced, what Joe Goldberg faced. I'm not sure about other shows of similar anti-heroes, but Hannibal Lecter, I don't, I haven't seen every Hannibal Lecter property, but they shouldn't reveal his backstory if they did. Yes, but Hannibal Lecter was probably more intense. Hannibal Lecter was probably way more intense. And, and I have some bits and pieces. What was it, that one with Anthony Hopkins? Is that? Well, he played Hannibal Lecter in one of the things, yeah. He was just insane. Like, he was like antisocial, just completely Well, that's not Hannibal deranged. <laughs> well, well, what you're saying is not Hannibal Because Hannibal Lecter was not antisocial at all. He was hosting dinner parties and, <laughs> and giving people oh, brains. Who was yeah, that, who that, that dude um, with uh, American Psycho? Christian Bale. He is antisocial. Yeah. He's like narcissistic, but he, is he really not antisocial? Christian Bale, like in American Psycho, he's, he's a little bit more... I kind of get the feeling that... I mean, Sarah Lynn, what do you think? I kind of get the feeling that Christian Bale is kind of antisocial in American Psycho, but it's been years since so I've seen it. Sarah Lynn, what do you think? I know, and I read the book too. And I'm trying to remember if the book, I think the book was first person voice. I think it was through his eyes, but the movie seemed more removed than that, didn't it? So the scene that comes to mind for me when it comes to American Psycho is the cards. And so whenever we, whenever they pull out the business cards or comparing the business cards, you hear, I want to say you hear a dialogue from him explaining how he feels about his business card versus other business cards. So I, I want to say that the film is also a first-person narrative in the same way that the book is. Right. That book really disturbed me. And I don't know, and maybe I'm coming from a different perspective because it seemed like all of his aggression and that nail gun. That Remember that mm-hmm. nail gun? I do remember oh, the nail God. gun. It was wonderful, wasn't it? It was great how terrible and demented. I'm a horror movie person, but yes, it was great and terrible at the same time. He was really good in it. Christian Bale was very good in it. He's, he's good in just about anything he's in. To twist, though, that back to Dexter, so I remember that Jeff Lindsay did not like the casting of Michael C. Hall as Dexter because the whole point of the character is he's supposed to be, like, really charming on the surface. That that's the way the serial killer hides is by being just a super charming, like, maybe the guy from You. That that is a better mm-hmm. example of the kind of... Uh, whereas Michael C. Hall, like, strikes you as, like somebody that there's something wrong with and that that is bad as far as, I mean, I, he pulled it off. I don't know. I thought he was fine, but I could see where he's coming from. Well, he 
bring in those donuts. Remember, he would come into the office, and he'd bring the donuts, and he had all those work buddies. I actually love those work scenes with Suko. Mm-hmm. Like, I love their his work relationships. You know, he seemed to be kind of broy there. I think that he was absolutely charming. Now, you can tell there's something beneath the surface, but just because he has like a hidden darkness doesn't mean that he's not very personable and likable and curious. I thought he was incredibly charismatic in this show. That's part of the reason why the show worked for me. Because if he was like brooding and walking around like mad all the time, I mean, it would have been as fun. What made the show fun was that he was so great, so personable, a person who I would actually get a beer with, who is also a serial killer. Here's a question, Lawrence, and I don't want to hear what you think about this. Do you think Dexter was faking it as opposed to like Hannibal Lecter, for instance, right? And like, I think yes at the beginning of the show, no in this final season. Because at the beginning of the show, it felt as though he was growy, but it wasn't natural to him. His first inclination was to be a serial killer, and his second inclination was to be the good guy. But in the final season, it felt as though he had figured out how to be both and without trying so hard, if that makes any sense. Now, I may not be convincing on that one, but that's how it felt. What do you guys think? That's why I think actually this is a character who has evolved. I think he's had a big arc. And yes, the last few seasons of the initial iteration were very rocky, but you can really see that final arc at the beginning of New Blood, where he actually has very genuine relationships, or that's what it feels like. Meaningful relationships. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. But that can effortlessly involve lying. He's still very fine with continuing to just lie right to his girlfriend's face, even though, you know, after she knows that there's something going on. I mean, he, he still is a serial killer, though. He's still a bad guy. Did right? you see the way he looked at that knife when she was arresting <laughs> him? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm, interesting also what we mean by serial killer, right? Like if we take James Spader from the blacklist, I mean, he's also a serial killer. In what way? Like, where are we, where are we putting the line? Okay, yeah, you're right. But Dexter's like hardcore animal lector. Hands on. You know, hands on serial killer, right? I mean, it's a little. I mean, look, <laughs> Hillary Clinton's a serial killer too, but we ain't putting her on the dangerous <laughs> level. Oh, a bombshell <laughs> to, to wrap up. <laughs> what? That's fair. Okay, I'm sorry. Bush was a serial killer then. I mean, whatever you want to say. To be equal-handed, I'm saying there's a difference between hands-on killing a person and giving the okay for someone to be killed. Although James Spader did kill a few people, whatever. But there's a difference in, in what Dexter's doing. Dexter's a different beast, I would say. Was that too politically charged for you guys? As long as we clarify that you mean that it's like by approving drone strikes and stuff, she's a serial killer. Not that, not that Vince Foster. Don't and lock his- her up. Don't lock her up. That's not what I'm saying. Don't lock her up. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that she gave the approval. I probably shouldn't say this. Bottom line is she gave the approval for a whole bunch of people to be killed and a lot of people are dead because of what she did. And you are pointing at something, not the West Wing. What's the one? The Kevin Spacey show. House of Cards. House of Cards, as yes, that is getting at the similarity between not only what you have to do and the tough choices as leader and the scheming that it requires there to directly, you know, connecting this to how it seems to go with a personality type that would be faking it to the greatest degree. And that, you know, to spoil a minor thing from that show, pushing somebody on the train tracks uh, 
<laughs> with your own two hands. Even George Bush wasn't doing that. That's not a minor thing, Mark. That's a huge thing. That's the climax of the entire season. We're talking about a minor thing. Hey, we're at the end of the episode. Mm, interesting, Mark. What do you think Dexter would say about the trolley problem? <laughs> well, it's a calculation. See, that's the thing that actually fascinated me about the show and that in a similar way, I'm actually, there'll probably be an episode about this and I'm saying this is the only reason I'm doing this, but I've been watching finally like the Sheldon stuff, the Big Bang Theory and stuff. I just tuned all that stuff out at the time. But what's interesting about that is it is another character that has no native social skills and sort of the autistic framework, however it is, whatever neurological thing you have going on, that makes you not able to read people's emotions and converse with them in a natural way, but instead have to do some calculation where you determine, okay, this is the appropriate thing to act. So yeah, the trolley problem, there is a calculation there and you can, you know, oh, of course you would save the, the maximum number of people. Like you'd be completely logical because you have no counter sentiments that would jump up to go against that. That would actually make it into a problem. However, he would definitely record the trolley going over the dead body. Thank you all for being on here. Any final words of wisdom about this property? If people sat through this, this show, but have not sat through the series, would you advise that they do so? I will say this. I really do love the show. Like, it's a really, really good show. I think that seasons one through four are absolute masterpieces. I think that in order to get into the final season, this, the new blood, I should say, you probably should watch like probably episode, like the final episode of the last season, but I wouldn't advise somebody to sit through seasons five through eight just read the recaps or whatever but i do think that new blood is really really good i think it is really complex philosophically very rich psychologically so i mean i'm joking around but i am being dead serious i think it's a wonderful show and i advise people to kind of to look for it and try to watch it if you can yeah i would agree i i was glad to catch this last season glad to see it end a lot better in the right way i do hope however that they just let Dexter and this whole franchise just kind of lie. We can all move on to Killing Eve now and you and all of the other new serial killer shows. But I do think that this new blood season was actually really good. And I was happy with the way that it ended. Michael, any last thoughts? Dexter will, will always have a, a place like personally in, in my heart, but for any aspiring viewers, uh, if you do decide to watch Dexter, Know that it's a big commitment and that it's also, I would argue, worth it for any like aspiring psychologists out there. Like there are quite a bit of tidbits. Philosophically, it can go really deep. Like we can talk about like how it relates to like notions of consequentialism, specific things like utilitarianism, all these really interesting things that one probably wouldn't find in other shows. So I would definitely recommend it. I'm not sure how would, how would, if this was kind of reversed. And someone said, hey, like, watch just New Blood. Do you guys think that would be a good piece of advice or, or absolutely not? There's just so much coming from the first show. I just don't know if I can advise somebody. Because they might get in and get lost. What do you think, Sarah? I think New Blood was strictly for the fans. I think it was trying to make it right. Yeah, maybe if they led off with that clown thing, which I thought maybe was something they were showing from a previous season. But no, it was a, it was a new villain introduced in an indefinite flashback of a, a murderer clown, uh, you know, in a very concise way. If that had been in like the first episode, just to kind of set you up of like who this character was or something, I don't know. They could have created it like that, but they didn't. So yes, I guess I agree. <laughs> I would not wish this on a random, you know, a random person who'd never seen the show before. 
I do have some follow-up thoughts with that, but I'm going to save them for the after-talk if people have a chance to, to stick around with me for a couple minutes. You can get that, as usual, at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you all for being on. So long. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Don't kill anybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at Pretty Much Pop as part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.